Hey everybody, it's Father Edward Looney, the host of How They Love Mary and author of the new book, How They Love Mary, 28 Life-Changing Stories of Devotion to Our Lady, available from Sophia Institute Press. I am enjoying so much my weekly conversations with different guests about the lessons as we go through the book one by one, person by person. Did you know that you could wear a sock honoring many of the different individuals who are found in How They Love Mary? In the month of June, I'll be talking about St. Therese of Lisieux and St. Kateri Tekakwitha and Fulton Sheen. Those three individuals all have a sock at Sock Religious. And when I talk about St. Faustina, well, she's the visionary who received the Divine Mercy. And you can find a pair of Divine Mercy socks at Sock Religious. Head over to Sock Religious by using the link in the show notes and begin wearing socks for the glory of God and in honor of the saints. Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you are listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. While we continue to make our way through my book, How They Love Mary, earlier in the week, I'm always happy to release a second episode in the week about another topic that I have found very interesting or intriguing and want to bring to your attention. And that's the case today. In fact, as I watch my book, How They Love Mary, on Amazon and just look at their rankings, I probably check about once a day, uh, I've noticed that there was this other book and we were kind of competing. And in terms of sales, I suppose you could say, for the number one position and a very niche topic called Christian Mariology. And so uh, it would be a back and forth. And, and as a person that knows how these things work, uh, I was thinking, well, it's probably she did a good show today, and so that's the sales from her show. Then when I'm number one, uh, it's because I've just done some interviews. But as I was able to make my way through this book, Birthing the Holy, Wisdom from Mary to Nurture Creativity and Renewal, this is another Mary book that you need on your bookshelf. I think it is beautifully done. There's a lot there for us to unpack. And so today I'm speaking with the author, Christine Walters Paintner, who is going to share more about birthing the holy. And she is a Benedictine oblate, and she uh, is a writer. She has authored a few other books as well. And I'm very delighted to have this conversation and to really discuss her book now uh, about the Blessed Virgin Mary. So thanks so much, Christine, for joining me. Thank you, Father Edward. It's a delight to be with you. And I know that you're from Ireland, so uh, I know that we have the little time difference and everything like that, so grateful for uh, coordinating this time and this interview. And maybe just the first thing, I love Ireland. I've been to Ireland. My last name, Looney, is Irish. Uh, in County Clare, you could go to O'Looney's Bar uh, and Grill, which is uh, on the water there. Um, mm. Actually, uh, Mr. O'Looney, I forget his first name, maybe it's Kevin, uh, but he is a big surfer, so he loves to surf. Anyways, um, 
Yeah, just what's maybe your favorite aspect of living in Ireland? Because Ireland is like this place everybody wants to go to from the United States. We just mm-hmm. want to be there. So for you as one who lives there, what, what's most enjoyable for you? Um, I'd, I'm going to have to say two things. Uh, I've lived here for 10 years now. I absolutely love the landscape, of course, the cliffs, the the sea, the rivers, you know, the greenery, all of that. So stunning. But then just the warmth and the, like, real sincere-heartedness of the people that live here. They've just been incredibly welcoming, and I've never felt like an outsider for, um, you know, for moving here. And so, uh, yeah, just, it's a, there's just a lot of um, real, that, that que admila falcho, you know, with 100,000 welcomes, it's very much alive here and it's a very sincere um expression of of you know their hospitality so and the landscape of course holds you know hundreds of you know ancient stories too of all the ancient monks that lived here and that's one of the things i i love so much too about the landscape is how every every single valley and hill has a story to it (laughs) What's some of your favorite places in Ireland? Um, you know, there are some very historic cities. The name of the one, oh, Glendalow. That was the one that was yeah. kind of uh, escaping my mind, but very historic town St. Kevin was there, an ancient village that you can really walk through. People love Crow Patrick, Our Lady of Knock, of course. For you, any of those special places uh, speak to you? Yeah, I love I love Glendalough. I can I love to go on retreat there. There's some wonderful hermitages you can go stay in there. Uh, I I also have because I live in Galway on the west coast of Ireland. I have a real special place in my heart for Connemara, which is a very wild uh, landscape to the west of us, and it's you know the bog covered granite mountains. And there is a, a trail there that's dedicated that goes up one of the mountains called um, Mamin Pass, which means the way of the birds. And it's a, a path that St. Patrick went up. So if you climb up this uh, slightly treacherous <laughs> mountain, you get to this beautiful setting where there's an altar and there's a big statue of St. Patrick. And every year on the Feast of St. Patrick, and I think it's also on Good Friday, there's a, a pilgrimage walk that, that goes up there. But Connemara in general is just a, a stunningly beautiful place, and that place in particular always, you know, when you get get up above the clouds and <laughs> see the sea, it's beautiful. Now, one of the things you do is you have the Abbey of the Arts, a virtual monastery offering classes and resources on contemplative practice and creative expression. This is probably how some of your other books that you've written, how you've given birth to them in a sense, sharing uh, this wealth of knowledge from your own doctoral studies for your love of monasticism and so forth. So tell me a little bit about how birthing the holy came about. What was your inspiration for writing it? Well, it's been in process for several years. The title um, actually came from an Advent retreat that I led many years ago. I, I think I've I've always loved Advent, and even even though I've never physically given birth, I love the metaphor of birth giving, uh, as because creativity is so much at the heart of my work and what I do. And I've often found Advent such a beautiful image of you know moving from darkness into light and Mary's journey of that holy birthing and the yes that she's invited to 
to utter and in response. And so I've always loved that imagery. And then I'd say, well, about 20 years ago when my mother died, that's, I think, when I first really started to cultivate a deeper relationship to Mary. Before then, she seemed a little bit removed to me. Sometimes she can be very kind of sterile looking and depending on her depictions. But then after my mother died, I was really invited to look for that archetype or that image or energy of mother on a larger scale. And Mary, of course, was what helped to embody that for me. And so over the years, there have been lots of encounters with Mary, some of which I share in the book, um, some particular Marys that I've, I've found that I've gone on pilgrimage to visit uh, that helped to, yeah, to kind of stir up my, my love for her. And then Ave Marie Press asked me if I'd want to write a book just about the time when I was thinking, this, I think I'm ready. <laughs> so that was a nice um, kind of confluence of, of moments, of events. <laughs> I'll admit I haven't added or counted the number of different titles of Mary that you address. I'm assuming, I think I read somewhere, it was 31 different titles of the Blessed yes. Virgin Mary. Is that right? So it's really a, a guide for the month of May, you could say, a, a great Marian month, but just following kind of the idea of 31 days. And, and the idea here is this is a, a retreat that you want to lead people on. Yeah, exactly. Most of my books have that similar quality of kind of a retreat experience. They're meant to be read slowly over time. And yeah, so the idea is 31 days. uh, May is a perfect month for it. October, you know, which is the month of the rosary. Um, It could be December as well for the month of, you know, during Advent and Christmas. So yeah, so that sense of just each day taking a little bit, you know, bite by bite <laughs> and and moving through these different archetypes which I talk about as you know these um, different names and titles that Mary's carried and 31 doesn't even scratch the surface of the number that there are out there uh, for her but I picked the ones that sort of called to me the most strongly I've already got another list going <laughs> in case I ever decide to do a part two but Um, You know, Mary has so many different faces, and so she invites us to consider all these different aspects of the sacred feminine, um, of that that creative indwelling in each one of us, and all of the different dimensions that that has within us as well, so... And we're familiar with some of the titles of the Blessed Mother, especially from what's called the Litany of Loretto. Uh, Mm -hmm. That has some of the more traditional titles. You have other titles as well, some of which we're going to talk about. I was really drawn to the idea of Mary of the Cell, and I'm sure you were Mm -hmm. because of the Benedictine oblature that you belong to and, and this notion of monasticism and such. So there are a whole wide range of titles. And what I particularly like is there's four parts. Part one, support for the retreat journey. And there you have three titles, Queen of the Holy Rosary, Queen of Angels, Queen of All Saints. And I think that's significant because as we begin a spiritual journey through a book, while Mary as the Queen of the Holy Rosary, while the rosary can be our companion as we make our way through this, that's one of the most concrete expressions of Marian devotion that we have. And then Mary as the Queen of Angels and Queen of All Saints. We look to the angels to assist us, Mary being the queen of angels, 
Mary's the queen of all saints, that every saint had a devotion to the Blessed Mother. That's what I bring out in my book, How They Love Mary, 28 Life-Changing Stories of Devotion to Our Lady, just showing how each person had a unique devotion to the Blessed Mother and how uh, we can learn from them and be inspired by them. And so really those are our supports for the journey. So I really appreciated that. And then just so many of the other titles as well. I, As you wrote this, I'm wondering, was there a favorite one that kind of emerged, one that really resonated with you the most, one that you really enjoyed writing or a title of Our Lady that you commonly invoke? Um, I have a special affection for Our Lady of the Underworld, who I encountered when I went to Chartres a few years ago and led a retreat there. And in particular, because I have a real heart for the the face of, like Mary, our mother of sorrows, has a similar quality to her in that that aspect of Mary that can really meet us in our deep places of grief and sorrow. And the, and it, the Our Lady of the Underworld has this particular quality of meeting us in those places where we've really just been undone by life and we don't know, we have no more orientation. We don't know where we're going. We've sort of, you know, the, John, John of the Cross talks about it as the dark night of the soul. And so I just found, I was so captivated to sit with her. She's, she sits in, the statue of her sits down in the crypt underneath the, the cathedral of Chartres. And of course, the whole cathedral is, you know, dedicated to Our Lady, Notre Dame. Uh, but to sit down there in that quiet space uh, and to be with that. And she's one of the Black Madonnas. Uh, there were a couple of the Marys that I focused on, which are the the dark face of the of Mary, which I think, again, connects to this Mary who is able to be with us in our sorrows and our struggles, and also with those who are, you know, the poor and those who are on the edges. And so that that face of Mary really, um, really resonates a lot with me, and I have a really big heart for <laughs> for her who can hold us all in that in that place of. Yeah, sorrow, lament, undoing, unknowing, darkness, all of that. Our Lady, untire of knots, undoer of knots, popular devotion in the church because of Pope Francis. He really brought that to the forefront because of his own devotion uh, to that image and giving it away. And that devotion has grown in so much popularity. And I often tell somebody a story that there was a, a situation I was facing and uh, just in the parish life, and, and I went to the shrine here in Champion, Wisconsin, where Mary appeared, and I, I began, I prayed day one of this uh, Our Lady of Knots Novena, and the problem resolved itself by the time I drove from the shrine back home. And so to me, that was very powerful. I'm assuming that the entire of Knots, as you uh, write about it, uh, is probably drawing upon that historical tradition uh, from St. Irenaeus and also Pope Francis. Would that be right? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I love that image of, yeah, I think we can all identify, I love the story that you just told, and I love that image of, you know, all the places where we feel tangled up and knotted, and, you know, the more we pull, the more things get constricted and tightened. And, you know, Mary just invites us to breathe and to soften and to, you know, essentially give over to her 
those places of knottedness, and then she can <laughs> she can work on those while we while we release. You know, I think sometimes we try and strive too much to you know overcome our own shortcomings. And sometimes we need, I think Mary reminds us, we need to, not that we don't need to be active in our own faith journey, but sometimes we need to actually let go of some of the striving and um, give her the the direction. <laughs> you have two words that are italicized in the table of contents, Mustafia and Hudagetria. And, you know, even though I'm a Marian theologian, I'm probably slaughtering that last word. But what are these two words? They're two different chapters, but what do they mean? Well, Mustafia is one of the Islamic names of Mary, which uh, was really important to me to include as a point of dialogue with other faith traditions, particularly because in Islam, Mary, there's actually more stories and more kind of words devoted to Mary in the Quran than there are actually in the New Testament. And so I was really intrigued by, you know, what is this Islamic devotion to Mary? And, and they really revere her and hold her dear. And there are several names uh, in Islam. I can't remember the other ones off the top of my head at the moment, but Mustafia basically means she who is chosen. Uh, so that, you know, they have a very uh, big devotion to that whole story of the Annunciation. And then Hodakatriya is the one of the Eastern Orthodox names. I do have a, a couple of other um, titles from that tradition, uh, but that one that is one of the ones that's often known by that that um, Latin name, and it's um, she who shows the way. So she's depicted as um, holding Jesus in her arms and pointing to him as showing us that Jesus is the way. And as she who shows the way, pointing to Jesus, Mary also has, as you include, Star of the Sea. In fact, that was one of the very first episodes I did on How They Love Mary back in 2019 when I started the podcast. It was a tweet that I saw from Sister Bethany of the Daughters of St. Paul. She tweeted about Mary, Star of the Sea being her favorite title. And I said, I'd love to talk to you about that. And so she was the very first interview I did back in the day. And so that's a very popular title. And uh, when I was in Canada visiting uh, the Notre Dame de Bon Secours Chapel in Montreal, there is this huge statue of Our Lady that sits atop this church, and it's facing out at the St. Lawrence Seaway so that people, the, the boaters, that when they were coming to port, they would see Our Lady, that Our Lady would guide them safely. So just as she is the Hodegatria, she who shows the way, well, to Jesus, she's also showing us the way to heaven under this title, Star of the Sea. And I know that's one that people love so much. Another title you include is Mother of Good Counsel, which this is a very tender image of the Blessed Mother. So it's uh, one of the popular paintings, I would say, of Mary, Mother of Good Counsel. It actually is on the front cover of a lot of the True Devotion to Mary books, depending upon the publisher who publishes that uh, book, but that's an image there. So she who supports our discernment, how does Our Lady of Good Counsel help with that? Well, she, for me, it's, 
um, you know, that aspect of the, the Blessed Mother that, you know, when we're struggling with a decision, when we don't know the way forward, uh, we can listen we can listen to her and listen for her good advice, listen for her good counsel. Uh, I've, I find there's a little bit of overlap between her and um, Our Lady Seed of Wisdom in the sense that we're calling both on her wisdom as well as her guidance. And I think that those two aspects together uh, really kind of help lift up. You know, I, I think she also helps us to see the guidance and the discernment that comes through the unexpected ways, you know, whether that it's through a dream maybe that she offers to us or a conversation that we're having with someone and suddenly, a, you know, a phrase rises up that make everything sort of makes more sense. Uh, those are kinds of the things that I think Mary can, can offer us when we're struggling with, you know, what, what is the path that I'm called to take right now? When I perused the table of contents, the two titles that really stood out to me immediately were Our Lady of Silence, she who calls us to listen to another voice, and Mary of the Cell, she who retreats into quiet. So for myself, I was trained by Benedictine monks for two years of my seminary formation at Conception Abbey, so I have a great love for the Benedictine tradition uh, as you do as well. And I, I'm curious maybe too, I'll ask this, uh, uh, what community of Benedictine monks are you an oblate of? But I'm, I'm sure that this idea of monasticism, which has permeated your life, that these are the reasons why Our Lady of Silence and Mary of the Cell are included here. Yeah, there's the, certainly the Mary of the Cell sto origin story actually comes from a Benedictine monk who in the 12th century was um, looking for a hermitage place in the forest. And he's, you know, carrying this statue of Mary and, and he's given a sign that this is the place. And the the site that he built his little cell, monastic cell there now is a, a large monastery called Marietzel in Austria. It's actually the largest um, kind of pilgrimage destination in Austria. And I have, so I love, I love the Benedictine connection. I love the connection to the cell, the retreat, the quiet. I also love because I had a whole series of synchronicities in my own life that called me to pilgrimage with her. Um, my the church that I, I lived in Vienna, Austria for a period of time and um, the church that I was attending had a, a little pilgrimage day to go down to see her and so anyway the yeah the, just a sense of and of course Our Lady of Silence I also have a love for as she's connected to the the site here in Knock the, the holy site in Knock and, and appeared um, in that site so that I feel like you know, there's lots of Benedictine monasteries in, um, you know, all over Europe, and many of them, you know, are connected to the sites of these Marian um, statues and paintings and apparitions. Uh, are, there's a, like another one in Switzerland, Our, Our Lady of Einsiedeln uh, is another example of Benedictine monks. And of course, the Benedictines and then the Cistercians who grew out of them you know, had a great devotion to Mary. Certainly Bernard of Clairvaux, you know, had wrote many, many sermons about her. And uh, so there's this great weaving together for me of my love of the Benedictines. And I'm a, 
um, an oblate with St. Placid Priory, which is a community of sisters in Lacey, Washington, about an hour from Seattle, where I used to live. And since you live in Ireland now, do you still have a connection with the community there? I do, I do. Yeah, it's uh, it was interesting. I luckily through um, you know the pandemic, a lot of things went online, so I don't I don't have as obviously as rich of a connection as I used to, and I do miss that. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely connected with several of my fellow oblates, and Sister Lucy, who's our oblate director, is a, a very dear friend and and guide in my life. When it comes to the burning bush, which is another title that you have in your book, a meditation reflection that you write about, that's a title that I was very familiar with. I've been studying the Blessed Mother for for many, many years, and I was in seminary and studying Mary as well. And uh, I mentioned that to one of my biblical professors, and he like told me that I was the most crazy person to think that and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, no, no. Mary is the burning bush. It's all about the fact that Mary's perpetual virginity, that that she remains a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. And so her she is not consumed them in that sense, just as the burning bush was not consumed. It was burning, but not consumed. So is that your understanding as you reflect on the burning bush, or is there even another aspect uh, to be reflected upon here? Yeah, I I think that there's certainly that aspect that you speak of. I I think for me, I'm also intrigued by just Mary's connection. First of all, to the to that Old Testament story, you know, where God calls Moses, and of course, you know, God calls Mary as well. And then this connection of Mary to fire, as well. And I'm I'm intrigued by you know the mystics who talk about the spark of the soul that dwells within each of us. And I sort of think of Mary as, you know, that the keeper of that flame or the one who kind of helps us also kindle, kindle that flame within us as well as um, stands on that holy ground, you know, beholding, beholding that flame. Continuing just going through some of these beautiful titles that you have, uh, woman clothed with the sun, she who is the woman of the apocalypse. Again, this is a very controversial biblical aspect of, of Marian teaching from the scriptures. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote a paper on this. I actually, you know, was, one of the professors was very upset because I criticized one of the, one of the more outspoken biblical scholars who says, he said that we should not read Marian imagery into a scripture passage where it was not intended. And so I kind of addressed Mm. that topic. So I I understand that the woman of Revelation 12, yes, is the church, it's Israel, that there are like 28 other interpretations of who that woman is. But I really Mm -hmm. think it has to be the Blessed Virgin Mary and our church's liturgy tells us this as we read it on the Feast of the Assumption, as we read it on Marian days, Lex Orande, Lex Credende, the law of prayer is the law of, ber- of belief. What do you make of the woman of the apocalypse in Revelation 12? 
Well, you know, I can I can appreciate the caution against reading things into texts that aren't actually there. However, we have this, you know, incredibly long, rich tradition where she has been read in to the text repeatedly <laughs> by, you know, many great thinkers. So I, I'm one, you know, like Bernard of Clairvaux and, of course, the Pope, Pope Benedict. And um, so I, because I take these images as archetypes and I don't see them as, you know, literal, um, we're not talking about literal representations. We're talking about symbolic, you know, representations. And for me, I found this compelling because, you know, of course, you know, we're living in times right now that can at times feel apocalyptic. And the root of the word apocalypse is to pull back the veil. And so I find something actually um, strengthening about knowing that, to know that during these times that we're living through the call is to see what's behind the veil when we pull it back and mary i think is there you know mary as the as the mirror of justice and the mother of sorrows and all of those other um, powerful uh, images that we have of her she also he is here in the midst of this feeling of the end times i think to help be with us to have a proper sense of vision and what does that what is that vision when we pull back the veil what does it call us to like how do we you know how do we discern our own calling in the midst of you know pretty um you know wars and climate crisis and things like that how do where do we find our place in the midst of that uh and so and the other aspect of it too that i find compelling is uh, this idea of time, I, I wrote a book on sacred time last year, and the last chapter was on cosmic time or mythic time, and this idea that we live in kind of a, a, a culture when we think of time as very linear, and yet um, what you know the great myths and cosmologies tell us is that time is actually cyclical. So when we're looking at the apocalypse, we're not necessarily looking at the end of time so much as perhaps the doorway to the beginning of a new era as well. And I think because Mary is, you know, the great one of the great birthers who said yes, I think she calls us to stand with her to not just look at the end of time as it sometimes feels around us, but also to say yes to the start of perhaps a new era that's filled with more compassion for people and more inclusivity and, you know, all of those qualities that Mary uh, asks us to embrace. <laughs> you said the word archetype a few times now in our conversation, and I'm willing to bet there are some people that may be unfamiliar with that terminology. So what what is an archetype? Well, archetypes are something that uh, the psychologist Carl Jung uh, sort of identified and described as these kind of qualities, experiences, energies that dwell in each of us that we find across cultures. Uh, so, and, you know, so we might in our dreams, you know, experience the great mother or the great father or the inner child or, you know, any of the names in here that I talk about with Mary also connect to these archetypal energies that we that we see appear in other cultures and one of the, so one of the things I find helpful about looking at this from an archetypal lens is Mary Mary is reflecting that archetype so she's reflecting the power of whatever it is that archetype brings into our lives but she's also 
reflecting that archetype within us. So we also have within us, you know, this place of virginity and wholeness. We also have within us, um, you know, the resources to listen more closely for discernment. We also have within us that spark of the divine. So for me, the archetype is a way of reading these stories from a more of a poetic and a mythic approach. Uh, uh, Yeah, which sparks something new hopefully within each of our hearts when we when we learn to identify with these you know each of us has different parts within us already right we're not just one dimension right we're all multi-dimensional human beings so archetypes can help us to embrace that multi-dimensionality and find the the gifts that are hiding there what surprised you as you wrote this book anything in the research process anything in the writing that really was something you didn't expect? Hmm. That's a great question. And I think, um, yeah, I didn't, there wasn't so much of a surprise as kind of just a falling more deeply in love. Um, one of the things I, I particularly loved as I was writing in that incubation gestation section was finding all these names of Mary that connect to like the elements, like Mary, the air we breathe, Mary, the burning bush, Mary, the life-giving spring, Mary, the greenest branch. So I, I was particularly drawn. And then, of course, Mary, the mystical rose who comes in the last section, the tree of life. I, I'm particularly, as someone who has a great love of um you know, earth-cherishing spirituality, uh, finding these names for Mary that um, give her a really organic connection to the natural world around us, I think invites us into deeper connection with those aspects of nature. And so I think that was probably the, the surprise was as I started to gather those names and to realize how much of a how much of a tradition there actually is of that, which I wasn't necessarily looking for when I started. I I also like that idea of the life-giving spring, she who gushes like a fountain. I fell in love with this icon of the Blessed Mother uh, when I was in the Holy Land, and I ended up buying it. It was you know probably several hundred dollars. It was a, a major purchase in a sense, but what I really loved about it was here you had like this three-tier fountain, And there were these people under the fountain, and they had these little cups, and Mary Mm. was at the top of the fountain. And so it was like, Mary, who is full of grace, that this is overflowing like a spring, and then we're trying to catch it in a sense. We're trying to receive from it. And, you know, there's the idea of Mary as the mediatrix of grace, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who you've mentioned a few times, who also is one of my favorite uh, Marian writers, uh, who's called the Troubadour of Our Lady, who uh, I'm actually writing about his Assumption homilies for a thesis uh, that I'm writing. So uh, I have a great love for Bernard, but he talks about Mary as the aqueduct of grace. Mm -hmm. So this is an image that is used for the Blessed Mother, the idea of life-giving spring or fountain or what have you. Yeah, it's a beautiful image. And I, I think living in Ireland, I've deepened in my appreciation of this image. Not not that this particular image appears here in Ireland, but there's the tradition of holy wells 
and there's all these natural springs all over all over Ireland, <laughs> you know, where people come for healing, and some of them are devoted to to Mary. So there's that beautiful sense. I think people come, you know, come to the water <laughs> uh, for that to receive that healing grace that Mary provides. Why end with Mother of Mercy? Hmm. That's a very good question. I I think because to me mercy in a lot of ways um, sort of sums up a, a lot of the qualities of Mary that I love. Um, and I love that icon of Mary with her cheek pressed against the baby Jesus, that that sense of tenderness. And of course the Pope, you know, several years ago, talked about the year of divine mercy, you know, when we were all called to this greater sense of forgiveness and hope and healing. And I feel like this, you know, Mary calls us to this revolution of tenderness and what, you know, what would the world be like if if we were to really practice, you know, that mercy, practice Mary's mercy in all of our encounters with with people both the people that we know as well as the people that you know feel like strangers to us in particular i think there's a a real healing grace for me in that in in what mercy represents i have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today and i hope everybody who's listened has enjoyed this conversation and if you liked what we talked about you're going to love her book all the more And the book is Birthing the Holy, Wisdom from Mary to Nurture Creativity and Renewal. It's by my guest today, Christine Valters-Paintner. And if people want to find you on the internet, social media, you've written a lot of other books, what's the best place to find you? My website is abbeyofthearts.com. That's Abbey, A-B-B-E-Y, like the monastery. So it's a virtual monastery with all kinds of resources for people, including a series of prayer cycles. And we're just releasing now a set of podcasts for morning and evening prayer for a week um, of praying with Mary, with these different images of Mary. So we're excited about that. Well, that's wonderful. It sounds like a great resource. I'm going to follow along, and I can't wait to finish reading Birthing the Holy. So thanks so much for your time and joining me today. Great. Thank you, Father Edward. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. I am honored by how many people listen to How They Love Mary. I hope that you'll continue to listen over the upcoming months as we continue to go through, lesson by lesson, my book, How They Love Mary, 28 Life-Changing Stories of Devotion to Our Lady. If you were touched by today's episode, consider sharing it on social media. And if you haven't already done so, please rate and review the podcast so that it might help others find it as well. Again, thanks so much for listening. Know of my prayers for you. Please pray for me. God bless you and Mary intercede for you.